Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. Let me add my welcome to all the welcomes that came before, whether you were welcomed at the door and in addition by Michael when he stood to lead us in the service earlier. Uh, we're really glad that you're here, and I'm especially glad as well to see many familiar faces of friends uh, from other churches around who perhaps have come early before the conference that's beginning at 6 p.m. this afternoon. You've come and joined us for our service, so thank you for joining us as well. We're so glad to have you. We're approaching a passage in the book of Mark. We're currently in a series in the book of Mark. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and we're beginning at verse 26, and we're reading on through to verse 52, 26 to 52. These are amazing verses. I suppose you could say that about everything in the Bible, but these verses are extra amazing, and they are deep and mysterious, and so we should approach them and desire especially to hear what God would say to us and what he would impress upon our hearts as we look at them today. Let's read them together. Let me read them to you, rather, and you follow along with me. Beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying, the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. 
And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, strengthen us through your word today. Strengthen us to bend our wills to yours, to take up our cross, and to follow you daily. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there's going to be three points to the sermon this afternoon. The first is, believe God's word about you. Believe God's word about you. The second is, submit to God's plan for you. Submit to God's plan for you. And the third is, beware the temptation to abandon God. Beware the temptation to abandon God. Well, Jesus has just shared his last meal with the disciples, and he's announced that one of them will betray him. The disciples were sad and confused by this shocking announcement. Each one of them was asking aloud if it was them. But that's not the main message that Jesus wanted them to take away from this mealtime conversation. He wanted them to understand that the Passover meal that they had just eaten was a symbol and a sign, not so much of a past rescue when God rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians, but that that Passover meal instituted so many hundreds of years ago was actually a meal that was pointing forward in time to something that was about to happen. The bread of the meal represented his body shared among them. The wine that they drank represented his blood that would be poured out on the cross and be the guarantee of a new covenant between God and them, making a covenant with them, those who would believe in him. And the first point this morning is, believe God's word about you. That's verses 26 through 31. Believe God's word about you. So our passage opens in verse 26, and it begins just as that famous Passover meal was ending. The last thing that Jesus and his disciples did in that guest room together in Jerusalem was sing together. It says in verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sang. I wonder if you've thought about that before. Jesus was a singer. As a faithful Jew, Jesus would have ended his Passover song by singing the words of Psalm 118. And so, as he faced death the very next day, he was singing Psalm 118, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He would be praying in agony later that very night. And so, he sang 
Verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. His disciples would all abandon him, but he sang verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. He would stand innocent before a vicious court of religious leaders, and he sang verse 7. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. He would pour out his blood for many to cleanse them from their sins. So he sang verse 27, thinking of the sacrifice of his life. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And he knew that he would be raised to new life. And so he sang verse 17 from Psalm 118. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. You know, we sing together the truths of Scripture not only to glorify God in the moment, but also to equip ourselves for what life is going to bring us. What truths from the songs that we've sung today might you need to face in this coming week? Are you committing these songs to memory? Are you showing up in time to sing these songs? Don't cheat yourself. Maybe the melody of that one song is a bit hard for you to get, or maybe the tempo of that other song is not just how you like it, but what about the words? What about the promises? What about the truths? What about the warnings that they have in them? We recently hosted a night of singing together, and we heard teaching about singing together. Matt Merker, our speaker, encouraged us to put the words of the songs that we sing together in prominent places where we live and work, like you might post scripture verses on your washroom mirror or on the dashboard of your car so that you could more easily see them and memorize them and think of them. What a great way to benefit spiritually from the songs that we sing on Friday together. The songs that we sing are based on scriptural truths and they are meant to equip us to face whatever life brings us and to help us walk as faithful disciples of Christ. Even Jesus must have been taking to heart the words of the songs that he sang that night as he faced his greatest trial. Now verse 27 takes us into the heart of our passage. And it begins with Jesus predicting that all of the disciples will fall away from him in his upcoming hour of crisis. And he grounds his prophecy in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7. It reads, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But his prophecy doesn't end on that note. He goes on to say that he'll be raised up and that he will go before them to Galilee. Now, just like all the other times that Jesus has spoken to them about his death and resurrection, they don't understand either his necessary death or his being raised up. But here they completely miss the promise of the reunion that he tells them about because they can't quite grasp the prediction that they're all going to fall away from him. Now, Jesus has been telling them 
that he would be killed and then rise from the dead. He started back in chapter 8, speaking plainly to them about it. And of course, there in chapter 8, Peter rejected the whole idea of Jesus dying. He rebuked Jesus even. And of course, he got a rebuke of his own from Jesus. But here, Peter rejects the idea that he will fall away, that he'll deny Jesus, that he'll abandon his master. You know, anytime you disagree with the Son of God, there must be pride involved. We don't simply see that in the fact that he disagreed with Jesus' prophecy from Scripture, but also in the way that Peter thinks he's stronger and more loyal than the other disciples. Did you see that there in the verse? Even though they all fall away, I will not, he says. You know, in the past, the disciples have argued with one another over which of them is the greatest. James and John tried to get Jesus to promise them the two seats of honor beside the throne that they thought he would sit on. Peter's prideful declaration of loyalty isn't something new. It's simply revealing the attitude that's been driving all of them, for that matter, up until this point. But Jesus doesn't back down. He declares the exact way that Peter will fail him that very night. He says, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And of course, Peter digs in. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. It's so hard to accept what God says about us as true, particularly when it's unflattering. Do you believe what God's word says about you? All the things that it says. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. God tells us in his word that apart from his work in us, we have no righteousness. We don't seek God. What about James 4, verse 1? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's true about you and I as well. Do you believe it? Do you accept it? Especially in the moment when you're arguing, when you know you're right and they're wrong. But some of you might have trouble believing other things that God's word says about you. Psalm 139, verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Do you believe that about yourself? To reject it is actually pride, just like Peter. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to God's word about you. Don't reject it. Don't deny it. Receive it. Few of us will ever receive such specific prophecy about ourselves from God's word, and yet his word is filled with truths about us. We must embrace it. That's one of God's designs for the local church as well, for us to speak the truth in love to one another. 
Our church covenant says that we'll exercise affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And we do that when we remind one another of specific truths from God's word that speak to the situations that we're facing. When you see what's going on in another person's life and you think of scripture that might benefit them and you share it with them. A friend left a note on my desk this past week, an encouraging note reminding me of what God's word says about me. Boy, what a lift. Well, it also says in our covenant that we will faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another. Those kinds of words from God's word also bless us, tell us the truth about ourselves. Peter didn't want to listen to the hard truth that Jesus told him about himself, and we can learn from his mistake, and we can learn from Jesus' example of obedience in this passage as well. The lesson from verses 32 through 42 is submit yourself to God's plans. Submit yourself to God's plans. Once Jesus and his disciples arrived at the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, they went to a garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means an olive press. And there Jesus tells nine of his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then verse 33 tells us that Jesus took Peter, James, and John farther into the garden where he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus was so distraught And in such deep anguish that he says so in verse 34. Look with me at verse 34. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus is in the midst of crisis. And verse 35 and 36 tell us what that crisis is. Keep reading with me. And going a little farther... He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What exactly is going on here? Now this passage, perhaps more than any other in the Bible, shows us that Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine. He was and is a man and God. When Jesus asks for the cup to be removed, he's asking for the cup of God's wrath to be removed from him. The cup, of course, was a metaphor that was used oftentimes in the Old Testament to describe God's anger and punishment against sin. And so Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. In his humanity, Jesus wanted to avoid the cross. He is anticipating bearing the sins of the world. He's considering what it will be like to be cut off from the Father. He's in agony as he looks ahead and sees the suffering that he'll endure. And his request is, remove this cup from me. But Jesus is the obedient son of the father. He does only what the father tells him to do. He says only what the father tells him to say. 
And so, though he asks wholeheartedly to avoid the cross, he also submits himself wholeheartedly to God's plan. Yet not what I will, but what you will, he says. Jesus made real choices each and every day of his life. He chose to obey the Father day in and day out. It wasn't automatic for him. He wasn't a robot. The passage in Hebrews that was read earlier in the service explains this importance to us. From Hebrews 4, beginning with verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus can genuinely sympathize with your weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that you have been and more. In verse 8, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, he goes on to tell us the mind-boggling fact that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's Jesus. He learned obedience The only difference between you and Jesus and learning obedience is that you and I learn through trial and error. (laughs) Jesus learned through trials, but he did not err. He didn't sin. He never had any need to consider his errors to repent of any sin and learn from it. No, he learned as he faced trials and he obeyed. But every time he faced a trial, he faced a choice. Do I obey the Father or not? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is your perfect high priest who bridges the divide between you and a holy God. He knows your every temptation. He knows your every weakness. You can and you must go to him. You can approach him with confidence confidence that you'll find someone in him, in Christ, who can sympathize with your temptations. And yet, he can also show you the way because he obeyed. You know, oftentimes we hear testimonies. We love the testimonies of people who have gone astray in their lives. They've committed horrible sins And then they heard the gospel, and they turned to God, and they preached the gospel to us. They tell the story of coming to faith in Christ, and we can learn a lesson from their mistakes. But that's not Jesus. We learn from Jesus' pure and perfect obedience. We not only learn to marvel at Jesus and his full humanity here, but we also learn from his prayer. I mean, we can call God Abba, Father. Abba was an ordinary family name for the father of a household, and when Jesus called God Abba here, he was breaking new ground. There is literally no evidence that any Jew of the Old Testament or of Jesus' time would call God by such an ordinary personal name. It was a a term that indicated intimacy and closeness. 
in Christ, you and I can address God like this. Do you? Or do you feel like you have to impress God with fancy words in order to draw near to him? Listen, it's not wrong to use expressive language if that's how you normally talk. But remember that if you've trusted in Christ, through Christ, you can use the language that you might use in a family household with the head of the household who loves you dearly. Even more, Jesus' prayer provides a model for us of both telling God what we want, but ultimately asking God to lead us into his plans for us. Tell God what you want. You should. Jesus did in this situation. But seek above all to have your wants and your desires conformed to God's wants and desires for you. Listen, have you ever heard a prosperity gospel preacher teach that you should tell God what you want and then have your wants and desires conformed to God's wants and desires? No, never. They say name it and claim it. Demand it, essentially, from God. That's not the example we have here from Jesus. I can think of multiple examples in my life. I wish it was constant and always, but a few stand out in my mind of when I wanted something so badly. There was a time when I wanted to marry a certain young woman. I really wanted to marry her. But I was learning at the same time in my life that I needed to submit my whole life to God, that I needed to do and live only the way he wanted me to live. I wanted to want the things he wanted for me. And I realized that I hadn't actually asked God about whether or not I should marry that young woman. And so I began to pray to God, and I told him I wanted to marry her. But I began to ask God, Please change my heart if you don't want me to. Change my heart. I need my heart changed. Eventually, I loosened my grip on that desire. And I could honestly say to God, because he had worked in my heart, that I would be okay. Because whatever God had for me, it was best. Now, as it turns out, God allowed me to marry that young woman. (laughs) But it was an important turning point for me and an important lesson that I've taken with me to submit my will and my heart to God's desires. Verse 36 isn't the end of Jesus' deliberating and agonizing over the choice that lay before him. It continues. He returns to the three disciples, and he finds them sleeping. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is facing an intense moment of crisis, and Peter is on the edge of a crisis too. He doesn't know it, (laughs) but he's sleeping. He's not watching. He's not praying. And Jesus identifies the danger for Peter. What is it? It's temptation. 
one Bible commentator explains, temptation is an invitation to be untrue to God. Temptation is an invitation to be untrue to God. That's what Peter will be facing. In his spirit, he's committed to loyalty and faithfulness. But in his flesh, he's weak. His sinful nature is leading him. He needs for his spirit to be fortified with guidance from the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus returns to his battle for obedience through prayer a second and then a third time even. And after each time, he mercifully and thoughtfully returns to find three disciples asleep, urging them, pray, watch. Of course, they're not praying or watching. Think back to Jesus' words about what the future would hold for his disciples back in Mark 13. Do you remember some of those words? There he warned them to be on your guard, to pray. And then especially at the very end of chapter 13, he said, keep awake, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Stay awake. The command to watch and pray is not just for times of crisis. You don't know when those will come. Watching and praying is what's necessary for disciples of Christ every day. Because every day there's the call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Christ. And like Peter, we can't do it depending on our own resources. We can't do it ourselves. We desperately need God to strengthen us, to give us discernment, to recognize temptations coming at us from every direction. We need God's spirit to inform and lead our spirit so that we choose obedience day in and day out. One author has said, spiritual wakefulness and prayer in full dependence upon divine help provide the only adequate preparation for crisis. Spiritual wakefulness and prayer in full dependence upon divine help provide the only adequate preparation for crisis. Are you staying awake spiritually? Or are you depending on yourself? You know, our bent is not to dependence on God. It's independence from God. If we didn't know the end of the story, it would be easy to look at Peter's bold declaration of loyalty in the first verses of this passage and to see him as the one of strong faith. I'll never deny you. I'll die with you if I have to. When in reality, Jesus wrestling in agonizing prayer in the garden, desiring the cup to be taken away from him, feeling weak and yet yielding to God's will for him to go and win eternal salvation for many rather than save himself, that was the demonstration of strong faith. Not Peter's proud announcement, but Jesus' humble request. Verse 41 through 42 brings us to the edge of the crisis. Jesus has returned a third time. They're still asleep, but now's the time. Jesus is stepping out in obedience. Look with me at verses 41 through 42. 
And when he came the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed. That brings us to the last section of our passage. Beware temptation in moments of crisis. Beware temptation which cause us to abandon God, you could say. Judas arrives in Gethsemane with men sent from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They're armed with swords and clubs. It must have been an intimidating sight for the disciples. They were fishermen from Galilee, former tax collectors. Judas had arranged a sign so that the armed crowd could arrest the right man. Remember, it's dark. Probably all they had was torches to see with. And so Judas, Judas greets Jesus, calling him rabbi, and gives him the customary kiss of greeting. This was normally a sign of brotherhood and fellowship, and now it's a sign of betrayal. They seized Jesus. In the commotion of the arrest, someone drew a sword struck off the ear of the high priest's servant, but Jesus wouldn't have any of it. He had already told them at the Last Supper, for the Son of Man goes as it is written about him. And he asks why they hadn't arrested him in the temple courts where he had taught every day. Why now in the dark of night? Look at the end of verse 49. Jesus says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Zechariah 13.7 has been fulfilled. The sheep have scattered from the shepherd. All 12 of his trusted followers are gone. The men that he had handpicked, men who had done miracles in his name, men who had all vowed to die with him if necessary just hours earlier, they've abandoned Jesus. The moment of crisis came and they weren't ready. The spirit might have been willing, but the flesh was weak. And so they fled in fear, unwilling to suffer whatever would come of Jesus. Now, verse 50, 51, 52 probably intrigued you if you had read ahead before today. Why would the gospel author, Mark, tell us this fact about an unnamed young man clothed only in a linen cloth? He's seized along with Jesus to, and he manages to break free while his captors hold on to the cloth and he runs away naked. Legend said that this was Mark himself, the gospel author, and that he was writing himself into the story. Not, not fictitiously, no, he was there. He was an eyewitness. Other scholars point to Amos chapter 2, verse 16, where the prophet describes a day of judgment that's so terrible that he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. But whichever is true, these verses drive home the fact that Jesus was completely abandoned by man in his time of greatest need. You'll notice that everyone in the passage is anonymous except for Jesus and Judas. All throughout the gospel accounts, 
People have flocked to Jesus. Crowds and Jesus were together in most scenes that Mark has recounted. And when they weren't there, it was because Jesus had fled with his disciples to isolation and solitude for teaching and focused instruction. Now the only crowd around Jesus are men armed with swords and clubs. No man or woman stands with Jesus, ready to take up the cross with him. The total abandonment of Jesus drives home the fact that God's plan of salvation was carried out by the Son of God alone. Man contributed nothing to it. Only God the Son could have humbled himself, taken on flesh, and lived an entirely sinless life, and then submitted himself to horrible execution on the cross, where he bore the sins of all the people throughout all of time who would trust in him. What a loving God. What a selfless Savior. And aren't we like those who abandoned him? prone to abandon Christ for our own selfish gain in times of crisis. We so often don't deny ourselves. We save ourselves. We protect ourselves. We don't head to the cross. We run the opposite way. Too few times do we follow Jesus. Too many times we follow others or our own desires. I titled this section, Beware of the Temptation in the Midst of Crisis, or Beware of the Temptation of Abandoning Your God. And yet, it's not only the big crises where we're tested and found wanting in our lives. Every day presents us with small crises of discipleship. Remember the definition of temptation, an invitation to be untrue to God? (laughs) We get those invitations every day. You and I face that every day. We wake in the morning. Who or what will we set our minds on first? God's word or something else that interests us more? We had to work. How will we work today? As little as we can to get away with it and still keep our jobs or as if God were our boss and we wanted to please him day in and day out. Religion is mentioned among our workmates. Will we enter into conversation and identify ourselves as a man or a woman who loves Jesus? Or will we be careful not to cause a stir with the coworkers? Better lay low, not take a risk talking about the gospel. We return to a spouse at the end of the day or we gather with friends and there's something that offends us. Will we bear with others? Will we set aside our pride or our self-interests? Or will we insist on being right and hold the grudge until they understand? You know, all of these situations are the kinds of small, everyday crises of faith that we face. Have we watched? Have we prayed so that we're not caught asleep when we're faced with these ordinary tests of faith? But brothers and sisters before you're too discouraged, thinking about how you can identify with Peter and James and John and the rest who fled. After you've recognized how much you're like them, take another look at your Savior. Jesus was willing to be betrayed and abandoned for the glory of the Father and for us. 
For Peter and for James and for John, he went to the cross. And all the others who left him alone in his hour of greatest need, he died for them. He was abandoned to that angry mob so that we might never bear the righteous wrath of an angry God. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Long ago in the first garden, the first man and woman gave in to temptation. They were untrue to God. And now the twelve have done the same. But Jesus is the second Adam, the perfect man, the son of the Father. Rather than give in to selfish temptation, he's yielded to God. He's submitted to his Father's perfect plan to provide forgiveness for any sinner who repents and trusts in him. Have you repented and trusted in him? You can, even now. The first Adam gave in to temptation to sin and rebellion, and it led to death for all. But now the second and better Adam is here in another garden facing temptation, but he alone is submitted to God's will, which will lead to his death and eventually lead to everlasting life for all who call upon his name. Jesus had sung the verses of Psalm 118 just hours before this, and now he's making the promises of Psalm 118 sure and effective. The promises in that psalm are grounded on Jesus and what he did. Verses 19 through 24 in Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Jesus, betrayed and abandoned, has opened the gates of righteousness so that sinners like you and I can walk through them. Don't run from him. Run to him. He drank the cup for us. He learned obedience for us so that we might walk in obedience as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you sent your Son, your only Son, your beloved Son, who in his moment of trial, his moment of greatest crisis, his moment of greatest decision, was faithful when we've not been. We trust in him. We thank you for him. We believe and live for him. In Christ's name, amen.